Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Let's be seated. So I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and she was telling me about how one of her early childhood memories is about the Trinity. It might not surprise you to learn that this friend is now a pastor. (laughs) But at the time, she was about five years old. She was riding in the car with her mom. And for whatever reason, it was just she and her mom in the car that day. And it was a beautiful, sunny day in Seattle. And so they were riding along, and my friend was thinking. And she said to her mother, Mom, can I ask you a question? Sure, sweetie, her mom said. Well, we believe in God, don't we? My friend asked. Yes, her mom answered. So God is God. And we believe in Jesus, who's God's son, right? Yes. And we believe that Jesus is God, right? And then there's something about the Holy Spirit. (laughs) Your mom says, "Uh uh-huh. And my friend says, well, I count three. Why do we say we believe in one God when I count three? I don't understand. My friend says her mom was, uh, was quiet for a moment and was thinking carefully about how to answer. And then when she spoke, my friend remembers that her mom's voice had just a real gentleness in it, compassion, respect, without a trace of dismissiveness or condescension. She said, it's okay, honey. No one else really understands either. <laughs> So today is Trinity Sunday. It's a day in the church year when we pay particular attention to and give thanks for the fact that God is three in one. That God is three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet he is still just one God. It is shall we say, not a self-evident concept. Because the doctrine of the Trinity, it doesn't say that each of these three persons is one-third of the Godhead. That would make sense. That would be easy enough to understand. But what we believe is actually that each of the three persons is fully God. The doctrine of the Trinity also doesn't teach that each of the three persons is a different expression or manifestation of God, the way that matter has three different states, solid, liquid, and gas. That would also be relatively straightforward. But instead, we believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each their own divine persons, not just different manifestations of God. And yet these three persons are just one God. As the Athanasian Creed puts it, we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity. Clear as mud, right? So then to make it just a little bit more challenging, there's the fact that the Trinity, as a word or as an articulated concept, It's not in the Bible itself. 
Certainly the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are each mentioned in lots of different places in the New Testament. And Jesus, in the Great Commission, puts them all together when he tells his disciples to go out and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And even in the Old Testament, there are lots of places where the idea that there is some plurality in God, that that is suggested, even though they articulate and emphasize over and over that God is one. But despite all of that, nowhere in the Bible does it say that God is Trinity, that there are three persons of the Godhead, all equal, all eternal, the three united as one. (coughs) But to say that the doctrine of the Trinity is not in the Bible is not to say that it does not come from the Bible. In fact, it's quite the opposite. What we now think of as the doctrine of the Trinity is the result of church leaders and theologians in the first several centuries of Christianity trying to make sense of God as they saw him revealed in the scriptures. The gospels, the epistles, they speak of Jesus as being the son of the father, but also being one with the father that Jesus is both the Son of God and God himself. And then, in my five-year-old friend's words, there's also something about the Holy Spirit. So how do we understand, how did they understand this complexity of the God who is depicted in the scriptures? So throughout the first few centuries of Christianity, people wrestled with this question. In the year 325, a group of bishops gathered in the city of Nicaea, which is in modern-day Turkey, to try to come to some agreement about it. Mostly they were concerned with trying to understand the relationship between the Father and the Son, how Christ could be both the Son of God and God himself, and human as well. And what came out of that meeting, which was called the Council of Nicaea, was the Nicene Creed. The creed that was written then, in 325, was a little bit different than the one that we say each week. Most notably, the only thing it says about the Holy Spirit is, we believe in the Holy Spirit. But what this early version of the creed did do was to articulate that the Son was of one substance with the Father. The Son and the Father are made of the same stuff, basically. It wasn't until almost 60 years later, when a bunch of other bishops gathered in Constantinople, that the part of the creed about the Holy Spirit was fleshed out, and the version of the Nicene Creed that we say today was written and approved. So for the, in 381, in the first time in the history of Christianity, bishops from all over the Christian world had come together and declared with one voice what Christians believe about the nature of God. And what they said was that God was three distinct persons, all of one substance, one God. In other words... 
The doctrine of the Trinity is the church's attempt, guided and inspired by the Holy Spirit, to understand the complexity of God as God is revealed in the scriptures, the Old and the New Testaments. And in that sense, the doctrine of the Trinity is a great and good and important thing. I was talking to another friend of mine this week, and she was telling me about an experience she had in a theology course in divinity school. In that course, they were talking about the incarnation that day, about how it worked. How was it that the eternal second person of the Trinity became incarnate as a human being, fully God, fully human? How did this work? And as my friend listened to this discussion that was happening in the class, an image came to her mind, an image of a butterfly box. You know what these things are? It's a box or a case of some sort with a glass top, and you pin down specimens of butterflies on the board underneath so that you can see all the details of their bodies and their wings and the colors. And as my friend thought about this, she thought, you know, it's true that you can see and learn a lot more about a butterfly when it's pinned to a board in a butterfly box than you can when it's fluttering around in your garden. You can see and appreciate the beauty of the details and the patterns and the colors and the wings. But a butterfly pinned to a board is, to put it bluntly, dead. And it's not just life that you've taken from the butterfly when you pin it to the board. It's something essential about what it means to be a butterfly, which is flight. So a butterfly box might help us learn a lot of things about butterflies, but it can't capture the essence of the butterfly. And the discussion about the incarnation that my friend's classmates were having that day felt to her a little bit like a butterfly pinned inside a box. There were lots of things that they were learning about the incarnation, about what it means that God became human, And those were important and good things to learn and discuss and to explore. But in that conversation, the essence of the incarnation, the life of it, the mystery of it, had gotten lost. And so it can be with the Trinity also. All of those church councils and creeds, The miles of books that have been written and courses that have been taught about the Trinity over the centuries, they are all good. It's good to try to learn about God, to try to understand God as best as our minds can. But we lose something essential if we mistake the doctrine of the Trinity for the triune God himself. And what we lose is the life and the mystery of God. And when we lose those things, we risk losing God himself. In our gospel reading this morning, we learn a fair bit about the Holy Spirit from Jesus. We learn something about the relationships among the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we could take a lot of time to parse this all out, to go verse by verse and 
figure out as closely as we can exactly what Jesus is talking about, what he's telling us about the Trinity. And that would not be a bad thing for us to do. In fact, it could be a very good thing for us to do. But this Trinity Sunday, I would rather we let this passage be less like a specimen we examine in a butterfly box and more like a butterfly we watch as it flits around our garden. We'll get glimpses of the details, maybe. But most of all, I hope in looking at this passage that we experience something of the essence, the mystery, the life of the Trinity. So there is a little bit of background information you need to know about this passage. In John chapter 16, it comes right in the midst of what scholars call Jesus's farewell discourse. So from chapters 14 to 17 of John, Jesus is talking to his disciples on his last night before his crucifixion. He's talking to them about what it means that he's going to go away, and he's praying as he prepares to be crucified. And in that, those several chapters, Jesus talks about the Spirit a number of times. In chapter 14, he calls it the Spirit of Truth and the Holy Spirit. In chapter 15, he again calls it the Spirit of Truth. But in all of them, he refers to the Spirit as the Helper, as our version translates it. That word helper in Greek is paraclete. We really don't have a good English word for it. It can mean helper, can mean advocate, comforter, guide. Literally, the word means one called alongside. So the Holy Spirit is one called alongside us. The Holy Spirit is God's presence with us when Jesus is no longer on earth. The Holy Spirit teaches us truth and helps us understand in our own particular contexts what Jesus had revealed to us about the Father. Scholar Kathy Young writes this, The Holy Spirit's function is to testify to the truth on Jesus' behalf. For Christians living in every age, the Holy Spirit functions as our divine guide. The Spirit confronts individuals and societies with the Lordship of Christ, calling them to obedience to God's will. The Spirit strengthens us in our faith, comforts us in times of affliction, and guides us as we seek to do God's will in our lives. This is what Jesus is teaching his disciples and teaching us about who the Holy Spirit is, this comforter, this helper, this advocate, this one who comes alongside, who he has promised that he will send to his disciples when he goes away, when he ascends to be with his father after his death and resurrection. So what does this help us see this passage? What does it help us get just a glimpse of about the nature and life of God, the triune God? First of all, I think that this passage helps us glimpse that deep intimacy 
and relationality are at the heart of who God is. So if you look over this whole farewell discourse again, you see a lot of language of connection and relationship and intimacy in how Jesus describes himself, his father, the spirit, and then his disciples as well. So in chapter 14, he says, I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. He says, all that the Father has is mine. He says, whatever the Spirit hears, he will speak. What you get here is this sense that the essence of the life of God is relationship, is communion, is love. So when John writes later in his letters that God is love, he's not just making an analogy. He's stating something true, that the giving and receiving of love is the essence of who God is within God's self. There's a great church historian, Robert Louis Wilkin, who writes, This affirmation that God's inner life was triune was a great impetus to Christian thinking and to spiritual life, for it affirmed that the deepest reality is communal. So we see this relationality, this intimacy, this communion of love within the life of God himself. We glimpse that and the beauty and the power of it in this passage. And we glimpse as well the fact that Jesus invites us to participate in that life of love within God. So in chapter 15, just before our passage, is where Jesus talks a lot about abiding. He says, abide in me, rest, stay, live in me, and I in you. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep his word, keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. And so then in chapter 16, Jesus says that the Spirit will take what is mine and declare it to you. We have this beautiful vision that Jesus is alluding to, just letting us glimpse of that relationality, that communion within the life of God himself. We get to be brought into that. We get to live in the midst of that love through the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you remember nothing else from this sermon, I hope that you will remember this, that the heart of the life of the Trinity is love. And we are invited into that life and into that love. And it is, at the end of the day, a mystery, a beautiful life-changing, world-changing mystery. Sometimes, if I'm thinking about God, and I find that I have been looking more at the butterfly in the box than the one in the garden, 
I turn to art or music or poetry because somehow those things are distillations of beauty and they help me better enter into the mystery and life and love of God. So in the name of watching butterflies that still fly, I'll close with this sonnet for Trinity Sunday by Malcolm Geith. With word and with rhythm and with image, Geith evokes the life of the Trinity, the life that our triune God invites us to share. In the beginning, not in time or space, but in the quick before both space and time, in life, in love, in co-inherent grace, in three, in one, and one, in three, in rhyme, in music, in the whole creation story, in his own image, his imagination, the triune poet makes us for his glory and makes us each the other's inspiration. He calls us out of darkness, chaos, chance, to improvise a music of our own, to sing the chord that calls us to the dance, three notes resounding from a single tone, to sing the end in whom we all begin, our God beyond, beside us, and within. Amen.